Hi there, my name is Rabbi Pini Dunner. I'm absolutely delighted to share with you a new episode of Outrageous Vignettes from Jewish History, the first episode in my brand new series, Exploring Jewish History, broadcast from Beverly Hills, California. This episode is part of the Fishman Jewish History Lecture Series and is sponsored by George and Susie Fishman in memory of George's dear father, the late Lutzi Fishman, Chaim Yehuda ben Yaakov, Zichron Lebrocha, whose yard site is on the 12th of Sivan. May his neshama have an aliyah, and may we all be zechot to see Trias HaMesim. I've titled this first episode of Exploring Jewish History, Rogues, Rascals, and Rapscallions. And as you will see, I've collected together quite a range of characters. Their stories will astound you. They will shock you. They will almost certainly sadden you, and occasionally they will also amuse you. But most important of all, these stories are totally different to the superhero champions of Judaism stories that you are much more used to hearing about and reading about, especially in relation to the kinds of people I will be describing in this episode, by which I mean from the very specific background and from the particular communities they all belong to and that they associated with. You see, all the rogues, rascals, and rapscallions in this episode come from deep inside the heart of the world that I was born into and that I remain very much a part of, the Frum world, communities that were known before the Second World War as Yureim and which since the Holocaust have been referred to as Haredim. The world I am referring to is a world of devoutly Torah-observant Jews whose devotion and dedication to the key aspects of religious Jewish observance, such as Shabbos, Kashras, and Taras and Mishpocha, as well as to Talmud Torah, makes them quite unique and special. In essence, they are the standard bearers of a Jewish religious history that stretches back to Mount Sinai, to the temples in Jerusalem, to the sages of the Talmud, to the great medieval scholars who interpreted the Talmud and codified Halacha, and to the great communities of the past 500 years in Europe, in North Africa, and in the Middle East. People who come from this world dress differently than the Gentiles around them, and they often only speak their own dialect, whether it's Yiddish or Ladino. Even when they speak the local language, their conversation is still peppered with Hebrew words and with references from the Hebrew scriptures, making what they say unintelligible to anyone outside of their immediate circle. But as we all know, every world has its misfits, and every society has its eccentrics. And when you add to that the struggle of remaining true to your Frum identity and to Jewish tradition, while simultaneously trying to operate in a hostile world that militates against non-conformity and which resists unconventional behavior, you'll find that at one end of the spectrum, there are those who retreat totally into their own world, away from it all, and they become spiritually minded ascetics, while at the other end of the spectrum there are others who resort to activities and actions that seem to defy who they are and what they represent. It is the stories of some of this second group that I will feature in today's episode. And truthfully, there are many, many more rogues, rascals, and rapscallions who I could have included in the episode 
but we only have limited time. And I don't want to squeeze too much in because, as I've said so often before, a story half told is a story not told at all. Hopefully, I'll be fair to everyone I'm going to mention. I do not intend to malign anyone or to suggest that we can judge someone who is long gone and who has descendants that uh, they have left behind, many of whom, if not all of whom, are fine and upstanding people and in many cases, although not all, remain very much a part of the Frum world that their ancestors were a part of, even if they stretch that definition to the limits. Just to be clear, you will not have read any of these stories in an art scroll biography, and you will not have seen them in a Mishpacha magazine feature special. And, to be frank, you never will. Don't get me wrong, the angle of history that is represented by Art Scroll and Mishbacha is very important. But, and this is an important but, if the Art Scroll Mishbacha angle is left on its own, let's face it, it's quite one-dimensional. And what we are left with is a colourless picture. Hopefully, it is the balance offered by every angle of history that can give us the perspective we need, especially so that we, by that I mean those of us who religiously observe lives, our halachic lives, and those lives are so dear to us, can fully appreciate the fact that when the rogues, rascals, and rapscallions of today come to light, as they tend to from time to time, it's nothing new, and that's fine because human nature doesn't change. And just because there are rogues, rascals, and rapscallions who exist even now doesn't mean that our world has come crashing down. Okay, let's begin. The first story is really quite extraordinary and ultimately quite tragic. I'm grateful to Josh Bennett of Cleveland, Ohio, and previously of London, for bringing the main detail of this story to my attention. And it was once he gave me that key piece of information that I was able to track down much, much more information. Josh has been invaluable as one of the Baker Street Irregulars, and I'm extremely grateful to him. By the way, none of my historical research could ever advance to the level of detail it does without you, the YouTube viewers and the podcast listeners. And it is only as a result of all of my Baker Street Irregulars who so diligently follow my roller coaster rides through the side roads of Jewish history, then I am able to share the crazy stories I come up with. So, keep it coming. And Josh, thanks for this amazing story. Let me begin with this little book called Father and the Angels, which was written by an author called William Manners. The hardback edition, the first edition, was published in 1947. What I have here is the second edition the authorised abridgment, paperback version, that was published in 1966. So, I bet you're thinking, who is William Manners? It's a good question. Let me tell you about him. William Manners was a novelist, a mystery story writer. Before he became a writer, Manners had a very successful career as a professional boxer, 52 bouts, 51 of which he won by knockout. And even though he later became a celebrated fiction writer, he also wrote quite a few non-fiction books. One famous example of a non-fiction book that he wrote is T.R. and Will, 
a friendship that split the Republican Party, about the close friendship between Teddy Roosevelt and his successor as US President William Taft. The breakdown of their friendship during Taft's single term as president between 1909 and 1913, which came about because TR and Taft no longer saw eye to eye on policy, created a terrible split in the Republican Party. And it was this split that led to the election of a Democrat, Woodrow Wilson, as the next president of the United States. Anyway, Manner's book about TR and Taft is well written and very evocative. I highly recommend it if you can get your hands on it, that is. But Manners mainly wrote cheap pulp fiction mystery thrillers, such as his book, The Frightened Dr. Fanstock, about a fellow called Jerry Fanstock, who goes to the Green Mountains in Vermont for a summer vacation, only to find himself involved in preventing the theft of his scientist grandfather's industrial secrets. And if you like that kind of thing, it's a great book. Manners also edited a number of collections of short mystery stories by himself and other writers, as well as a variety of mystery story magazines such as Sleuth. And for some years, he was also the editorial director of the famous Alfred Hitchcock mystery magazine, one of the longest running mystery story magazines in history, eagerly devoured by mystery story lovers all over the world. But let me get back to this little book that I'm holding in my hand, Father and the Angels. It is, a very diff it is very different from all of the other books by William Manners because it is autobiographical. What it is, essentially, is a tribute to his father, whom he clearly revered and deeply loved. Manners was born in 1907 in the town of Butler, Pennsylvania. But this book is about his formative years in a place called Zanesville, Ohio, which is a small town just over 50 miles east of Columbus. I would like to read you the opening paragraphs of Father and the Angels, just to give you a taste of the book. And in a minute, you'll understand why this narrative grabbed my interest. I think you'll be interested too. Father had a beard like Ulysses S. Grant, writes Manners. He was short and fat too. He always wore the kind of tie that Abraham Lincoln wore. All through my childhood, I thought of father in terms of great and heroic men. And with good reason, just to survive my escapades required more than one man's courage, one ordinary man's courage. But I also had four escapadish brothers and one escapadish sister. And it wasn't just his own family that my father was concerned about, because actually his family was the whole of Zanesville. Fortunately, my father was ingenious, although it was too bad that he wasn't also omniscient and omnipotent. It would have made things quite a bit easier for him. You're not only Jewish, father said to me whenever I'd done something wrong, and that was often, but you're also my son. You must set an example. Everybody expects it of you. You see, father was not just my father. He was also the Orthodox rabbi of Zanesville. Okay, let me stop there for a moment. In a second, I'm going to continue reading a couple more excerpts from the book, but I have to stop here. I mean, can you 
imagine that? William Manners, the famous post-war mystery thriller novelist and Alfred Hitchcock collaborator, was actually the son of an Orthodox rabbi. I did a quick Google search. I was intrigued. Who was Rabbi Manners of Zanesville, Ohio? I'd never heard of him. As it happens, Google also hadn't heard of him. There was never anyone called Rabbi Manners in Zanesville, Ohio, or anywhere else in America for that matter. Crazy. Was Manners lying about his father? Was this fiction? It didn't feel like fiction. Don't worry. I did eventually clear up the mystery, but I'm getting ahead of myself. L let me continue reading from Father and the Angels, and I'll get back to the facts and details once I'm done. Mother always said to Father, you'll never learn. Father would just nod and smile. Mother's prediction didn't bother Father because he intended going on and on meddling. Father described himself as the little fool who marries them and buries them. But Mother was right when she said Father spent more time meddling than he spent at weddings and funerals. Meddling was what he enjoyed most. Weddings and funerals meant the preparation of a speech and sitting down and writing speeches or sermons in his big canvas back ledgers was not something that father enjoyed. So of course, when his meddling resulted in a wedding, he had to pay for the pleasure he'd had when he'd meddled by writing a speech. Later, if they had a boy, he had to pay the extra toll of a circumcision speech. As you can hear, Manners writes beautifully about his father, and the type of person he is describing when he talks about his father is actually very familiar. A solid, caring, provincial rabbi of a small, orthodox community in a small town. It could have been anywhere in the Jewish world, but, but it was in America. This was a congregational rabbi who did chasnas, he did levias, he gave droshes, and he was involved in people's personal lives. Zanesville is, and has always been, a centre of industrial pottery production. But the Jewish community that lived there in the early 20th century was small, and they were not particularly well off. The rabbi reflected that. He comes across in his son's book as a fine, upstanding man. Not particularly learned, not, not a massive Talmud Chochem, but very sincere. I, I want to read you just one more piece from Father and the Angels because it caught me by surprise as I read it. And, and later on, I realized that it related to the whole story about Manna's father, the Orthodox rabbi of Zanesville. The prelude to this excerpt is that Manna's father had, at some point after America joined the First World War in 1917, announced to his family that he wished to join the US military as part of the war effort a novel idea which grabbed the attention of young William and which he proudly shared with his friends at school, telling them that his father, the rabbi, was becoming a soldier in the infantry and that he was going to ride a white, a big white horse. One of the boys at school, a terrible bully, was not impressed by this news. And this is how Manners describes the bully's reaction and later on what his father said. Rexy Reynolds, who was tall and in fifth grade, grabbed me and started twisting my arm as hard as he could, his close-set blue eyes glowing. Your old man is in the army, he growled in my ear. 
That little fatty preacher is in the army. Ha! Rexy twisted my arm until the pain made me sink to the ground of the schoolyard. Should I give him the good old Dutch rub? Rexy asked the fellows who had crowded around to be entertained by my writhings. Rexy didn't wait for an answer. His knuckles dug down deep into my scalp. I cried, but it wasn't the Dutch rub that hurt. Rexy's words dug down much deeper into my feelings and much more painfully than the knuckles working into my scalp. That night, I told father the whole story. I needed his consolation. You mustn't mind too much what people say, father said. Father was seated and he drew me to him so that I stood between his knees. This gesture of affection started me crying and though I tried as hard as I could to stop, I just couldn't. Father cooed comfortingly. He brushed the hair from my forehead with his hand. If I hadn't told a lie, I sobbed, it might not have happened. You said you were going to ride a horse in the army. I said you were going to ride a white one. You spoke of a white horse? <laughs> Father chuckled. So it was a white lie. You mustn't be afraid of a lie. A good lie can sometimes be better than bad, malicious truthfulness. So don't bother your head about this anymore. That's the end of the anecdote. I was really quite surprised by that quote from the rabbi. You mustn't be afraid of a lie. A good lie can sometimes be better than bad, malicious, malicious truthfulness. Why didn't he tell his son? You know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe it would have been better not to tell a lie. Midvar sheker tirchok. It says in the Torah, distance yourself from lies. But that's not what he said. What he said was, you mustn't be afraid of a lie. A good lie can sometimes be better than bad, malicious truthfulness. How strange, I thought. Not very rabbinic, but who knows? Maybe Manners had adopted some literary license when he wrote the book. Maybe his father had never said that at all. Maybe it didn't really fit in with his very honest, straightforward personality that Manners describes. How could an honest Frum rabbi tell his son that it's not such a bad thing to lie if the circumstances call for it? What do you think? Good question, right? William Manners died on September 6th, 1994. He was 87 years old, and just so you know, he never knew anything about the story that I'm about to tell you. It's a wild story, but he knew nothing about it, even though it involves his father, the very same man about whom he wrote in his book. So where do I begin? I kind of started in the middle, but let me go back to the beginning of the story. William Manor's father was actually British. His name was Rabbi Harris Rosenberg. And here you can see a photo of him. Harav Yitzchok Tzvi ben Rebzev Halevi. He was born in Strausberg, a town in the state of Brandenburg near Berlin in 1878, but he, he moved to England with his parents and he got married in England in 1898 at Great Ailey Street 
synagogue in Whitechapel. That's the East End of London. To Chaya Maccabee, who was also known as Annie. At this stage, Harris's last name was not Rosenberg, it was Ehrenberg. He was the son of Wolf, Zev, and Sarah Hannah Ehrenberg. Here is a certified copy of Harris and Annie's marriage certificate. Annie Maccabee was the daughter of Elchanan Maccabee. And Elchanan Maccabee is interesting because he was the brother of Reb Chaim Zundel Maccabee, the Kamenitzer Magid, who was a prominent Rav in England at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. The Kamenitzer Magid was born in Russia and he was a master orator in Yiddish. During the 1880s, he was the official Magid of Chayvavetsiyayin. He was one of the most prominent Magidim across the Litvisha Russian communities during this period. Wherever he went, thousands upon thousands of people flocked to hear him, and his droshes could last four or five hours, and no one ever left to go home. They were spellbound. Incredibly, Reb Chaim Zundel attracted the attention of the imperial Russian authorities who were not happy with him. Who was this guy who got thousands of people to listen to him for hours on end? They were nervous about him. They feared he was a dangerous demagogue and an anarchist revolutionary and that he would influence Jewish communities against the Tsar. So, in 1890, Reb Chaim Zundel Maccabee ran away to London, which was far away from the centre of European Jewish life. But he had to run away, and running away probably saved his life. As a result of being in London, where he had a job as the community Magid who gave droshes in different shuls every week, the Kamenitzer Magid eventually faded into total obscurity. And when he died in 1916, he was only in his 50s, very poor and very zerbrochen. Reb Chaim Zundel's brother Elchonon, also known as Elkan Maccabee, lived in London. Together, altogether, Elkan had 14 children, seven from his first wife and seven from his second wife. Annie was a child of his first wife and was probably born in 1874, making her four years older than her husband Harris, although on the marriage certificate they give her age as 21, which must be wrong. Why Harris married Annie is unclear. But soon afterwards, they moved to Newcastle in the north of England, just across the river from Gateshead. They had three children, Shmuel, Sai Rosenberg, born in 1899. That's a photo of him. He died in 1971. Mordechai Mott, or Max Rosenberg, born in 1901. He also died in 1971. And Sophia, born in 1903. She died in 1997 at the age of 94 in Kansas City. And now it's time to get to the interesting part of the story. In 1905, Harris Ehrenberg suddenly moved to America. He left his three children with his mother in London. And when he arrived in America, he abruptly changed his last name from Ehrenberg to Rosenberg. The move to America raises so many questions. Why did Harris Rosenberg move to the United States? Why did he change his surname? And of course, the main question is this, what happened to Annie? 
So that part of the mystery seems to have an easy answer. According to the official history of Jews in Zanesville, which can be accessed via columbusjewishhistory.org, Annie died, leaving her husband with three little children, and clearly he couldn't cope on his own. There is the awkward question of why he went to America instead of staying in England, but you can kind of dismiss that by saying that lots of people moved to America for a fresh start at that time, so it's not completely crazy that Harris did it as well. What we do know is that very soon after arriving in America, Harris remarried on February 27, 1906, to Bertha Schildhouse in the Bronx, and soon afterwards, in August 1906, his three children, Cy, Mott, and Sophia, arrived in New York with their grandmother, Sarah Hannah Ehrenberg, on the White Star Line's famous steamship, the RMS Cedric. Here is a photo of Harris Rosenberg with his new wife, Bertha, in 1906. After getting married, Harris and Bertha moved to Butler, Pennsylvania, where Harris served as rabbi of the small Orthodox community there. And then, in around 1910, they moved to Zanesville, and Harris became the rabbi of Beth Abraham Congregation, a small community of, at that time, 35 or 40 families. Harris had another three children with Bertha, Abraham, David, and William. And Harris's mother also lived with them, so it was a large family made up of three adults and six children. Harris made a strong impression on the Zanesville Jewish community. For example, he was instrumental in the construction of a new shul building. On Sunday, December 21st, 1924, which was during Hanukkah, the new brick-built shul had its grand opening, and it replaced the congregation's old wooden shul that was just a few blocks away. The new shul building cost $40,000 to construct, which in today's money is more than $600,000. The main sanctuary had 400 seats. It was the larger of the two shuls in Zanesville, and as William Manners recalls in his book, it was Rabbi Harris Rosenberg who did the major fundraising and all the heavy lifting to make sure the new shul was built. Sadly, Harris Rosenberg died on December 29th 1927, at the young age of 49, most probably from stomach cancer, although the cause of death was never established. His son William, his son William in the book, recalls Rabbi Rosenberg's last few days in vivid detail. The rabbi's dignity and fortitude made a profound and lasting impression on William, and he writes about it very, very movingly. Harris's funeral was attended by hundreds of people, both Jews and non-Jews. The mourners at the funeral even included Zanesville's mayor. The local newspaper, The Times Recorder, published a public notice that had been placed there by the members of the Beth Abraham's congregation, and this is what it said. The angel of death has appeared and has removed from our midst our spiritual leader and advisor, Rabbi Harris Rosenberg. His high position in his profession is beyond question. He was ever ready to help all. His time, effort, and ability, he cheerfully and unhesitatingly granted to the community. He was kind and generous to the poor and needy. He was sincere and unselfish in thought and action. He was modest and unassuming. 
He had the courage of his convictions and always was always aligned on the side of the righteous. Congregation Beth Abraham can never repay the debt of gratitude which it owes him for his unselfishness, his devotion and his untiring efforts in the building of their house of worship. Rabbi Rosenberg's mother, Sarah Hannah, died three and a half years before he died in 1924. And sadly, his wife Bertha, his second wife, died just seven years after her husband in 1934. She was still in her early 50s. The three of them, Harris, Bertha, and Harris's mother, are all buried side by side in the Beth Abraham section of the United Jewish Cemetery in, in Falls Township, just west of Zanesville. There's actually a photo of the three graves online. Here it is. And I've discovered that there's something really strange about Rabbi Rosenberg's mother's gravestone inscription. Take a look. Her name was Sarah Hannah Ehrenberg. But that's not what it says on the inscription. It says, Sarah Hannah, no surname. And then it says, mother of Rabbi H. Rosenberg. The Hebrew part of the inscription also doesn't have her last name on it. I wonder if anyone thought it was strange at the time. Most, if not all, gravestone inscriptions have a surname. And if they don't, it is extremely strange for the inscription to give the surname of a child as a method of identifying who the person was. Very, very odd, don't you think so? So what's going on here? What if I were to tell you that Rabbi Harris Rosenberg's first wife, Annie Maccabee, didn't die before 1905? What if I were to tell you that when Rabbi Harris Rosenberg came to America and remarried and had three more children, Annie, was still very much alive in England. In fact, not only was Annie alive when Harris came to America in 1905, she was still alive when he died in America in 1927. And in fact, she outlived her husband by almost a quarter of a century. Yes, my friends, Rabbi Harris Rosenberg, the respected Orthodox rabbi of Zanesville, Ohio, who was written about so glowingly by his son in Father and the Angels, whose community declared after his passing that he was sincere and unselfish in thought and action, was a bigamist, plain and simple. He never divorced Annie, and she hadn't died. Instead, he left her behind in England, took their children with him to America, told them she was dead, and with the help of his mother, built a new life for himself under a new name, with a new wife, in a new country, and never returned to England again. So, do I have your attention now? Have you ever heard a story like it? It's crazy, right? But the thing is this, the story is a bit more complicated than that. And I'm not sure it's entirely fair to categorize Rabbi Harris Rosenberg as a rogue or as a rascal or indeed as a rapscallion. In fact, I have a nagging suspicion that the Maccabee family were in on it. And although I don't have proof, I think it makes sense. And when you hear the details, I think you'll agree. 
You will recall that Harris and Annie had three children and that the third one, Sophia, was born in 1903. Soon afterwards, Annie suffered a serious mental breakdown, probably induced by childbirth, but there was also a history in her family of severe depression. Annie then came to London, probably with Harris and her children, and most likely to be looked after by a relative. But very soon afterwards, she was taken to a place called St. Marylebone Workhouse, a 170-year-old facility on Northumberland Street, which is now called Luxborough Street in London's West End, on the site where the University of Westminster is today, very close to Madame Tussauds Waxwork Museum. St. Marylebone's Workhouse doesn't exist anymore today, but for over 200 years it fed and housed the poor and it had dormitory facilities and offered work opportunities. But Annie wasn't taken there because she was poor. She was taken there because St. Marylebone's Workhouse was a feeder facility for a terrible place called Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum, what we would call today a mental health facility or a psychiatric facility, although Colney Hatch Asylum was not at all about curing people with mental health issues. Colney Hatch Asylum had one purpose only, to lock patients up and keep them away from society. And that's where Annie was taken on 17th of December, 1903. Here's another photo of Colney Hatch as it looks today. After the Second World War, the name changed from Colney Hatch Asylum to Fryan Hospital. It's actually in an area of London called Fryan Barnet just west of New Southgate. How Annie could have been sent there by her family is a complete mystery to me. They must have been completely desperate because Colney Hatch Asylum was a dreadful place with a terrible reputation. Just a few months before Annie was admitted in January 1903, there was a devastating fire in the hospital in the women's section and 52 people died. The story of the fire was such big news that it made it as far as California. Here's the report of the fire that appeared in the California Tribune in San Diego. Just for my London viewers and listeners who might be interested to know what happened to Colney Hatch Asylum, aka Fryan Hospital, it closed down permanently in 1989 and was sold to a property developer and is now called Princess Park Manor, which is a luxury gated community with more than 250 apartments set in 30 acres of parkland. Anyway, Annie, here's a picture of her, she was in those years, remained in Colney Hatch Asylum for almost five months after which she was transferred to St. Nicholas Hospital in Gosforth, near Newcastle, where, if you recall, she had lived with Harris for the five years after they got married. The hospital medical notes that kept track of her first year in St. Nicholas say that she was constantly suicidal. Here are some of the things noted by the nurses and the doctors. Annie seems lost. She says she is afraid someone is going to kill her. She imagined she heard knocking during the night. She fancies some Egyptians were looking in her eyes. She is depressed and sheds tears. She is dull and stupid and will not converse. She appears to be depressed and despondent and takes no interest in her surroundings. She is very obstinate and resistive. Heartwarming stuff. 
Annie remained at St. Nicholas for the rest of her life. That's from 1904 until she died at the age of 77 on December 8, 1951, by which time she had been locked up for almost 48 years. 47 and a half of those years, hundreds of miles away from London, where her siblings and their children mainly lived. But much more shockingly, she was thousands of miles away from her husband and three children, who she never saw again, not even once, until the day she died. As a matter of fact, as far as her children were concerned, their mother died before they left England, and the only mother they ever knew was Bertha. They went to their graves, never knowing that their mother had been alive long after their father died, incarcerated in a psychiatric hospital in the north of England, St. Nicholas in Gosforth. Here's a photo of what the hospital looks like today, and interestingly, it's still a psychiatric facility. To show you to what extent that Annie's children were ignorant of their mother and who she or her family were, when, when Mott Max died in 1971, on his death certificate, in the space for his mother's name, his family put Unknown Maccabee, with the surname spelt M-A-C-C-A-B-E-E -E, instead of M-A-C-C-O-B-Y. Can you believe it? Mott's wife and children did not even know their, grandmother, their grandmother's first name, nor did they know how to spell her maiden surname. Her memory had been totally blotted out. Now, we understand why Harris Rosenberg changed his name from Ehrenberg to Rosenberg, and why he moved to America, and why he found himself a job in the Midwest, away from anyone he might ever meet who he knew from England, because bigamy is a crime. And even today, it is a jailable offence in many states in the US, although interestingly enough, not in Ohio, where it is considered a misdemeanor offence under state law, not a felony. And do you remember the story of the white lie relayed to us by William Manners in his book, Father and the Angels? Now it makes perfect sense. Do you remember the quote, what Harris said to his young son? You mustn't be afraid of a lie. A good lie can sometimes be better than a bad, mad, malicious truthfulness. So don't bother your head about this anymore. For Rabbi Harris Rosenberg, lying about who he was, it was a white lie that was better than telling the truth. He even airbrushed his mother's surname from her gravestone inscription to keep up the lie. Imagine what his community would have made of him had they known that he had abandoned his sick wife and taken her kids, changed his name and remarried bigamously and had more children. Would they have considered him sincere and unselfish in thought and action? Possibly not. But I do think, as I said earlier, that the story is a bit more complicated because we need to ask ourselves, why did Harris do it? What could he have been thinking? He wasn't just a Torah observant from man, from a from family, and you've seen the photos. He was much more than that. He was the rabbi of an orthodox shul, and he seems, according to everything we know about him, to have comported himself properly. He never abandoned his Yiddishkeit, nor did he compromise on his frumkeit, and yet 
he was a bigamist, which is certainly against the halacha. My conclusion is that when Annie became sick and couldn't look after the children anymore, Harris and Annie came to London for help from her family and maybe from Harris's family too. And clearly, no one could help them because Annie was so ill. And as a result, very soon after that, Annie was committed to the psychiatric hospital and everyone in both families knew that she was never coming out. Maybe the idea of divorce came up and Harris was advised by experts that both from a halachic perspective and from a civil law perspective, it wasn't going to be possible to get divorced. And maybe they said it would be, that it was possible, but it would be very complicated to get a divorce and also that it would take a long time. Harris could definitely have tried to get a heter mea rabonim, the signed agreement of 100 rabbis that his wife was not able to accept a get. Had he got the heter mea rabonim, it would have allowed him to remarry without a Jewish divorce. But the truth is, it wouldn't have helped him with a civil divorce, and also it would have taken him a long time to get it done. And the one thing Harris really didn't have was time, because he had three very small children and no wife to look after them. He certainly couldn't look after the children on his own, and in any event, he needed to work to make money to pay for his children to be supported. I think that after some very difficult deliberations, deliberations that probably included both Harris's family and Annie's family, it was decided that the best solution, and indeed the only solution, would be for him to disappear to America under a new name and to find a wife there who would agree to marry him and look after his children together with his mother's help and that he would provide for the new wife. And so, Harris went to New York. He changed his name. He placed an ad in the New York Jewish newspapers and he found Bertha and they got married. Harris probably told Bertha and her family that he was a widower with three children and they unquestioningly accepted his white lie. Although, according to Harris's sister's great-granddaughter, after the three children came with Harris's mother to New York, Bertha's brothers became a bit suspicious and made some investigations, and they found out about Annie. But by then it was too late, and the dark family secret went with them, all of them, to their graves. Rabbi Harris Rosenberg did what he did. He became a bigamist so that he could take care of his children. And had he told his and Annie's children, as they grew older, about their mother Annie, and that she was still alive in a hospital in England, that would just have complicated matters for him and for them. And so he quite wisely chose not to tell them anything. Rather, he told them she had died and they never found out the truth. I think that it is fair to say that Rabbi Harris Rosenberg was definitely a rule breaker. But would it be fair to say that Rabbi Harris Rosenberg was a rogue or a rascal? I think not. Although, I wonder what you will think of the next character in our gallery of rogues, rascals and dripscallions. 
will we be able to mitigate what he did quite so easily? Let's see.